Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. Well, uh, we, uh, we are very close to finishing off the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've got about two, maybe three more sermons, including today, in the, in the book together. And, uh, and we see a bit, we're beginning chapter 13 this morning in the book, and it's a bit of a transition. If you followed us all the way from the start, Hebrews chapter 1, right through to where we are now, uh, much of the book has had a kind of a focus on what we would call theology or even orthodoxy kind of a right view, a right thinking of who God is. And that's what a lot of has been happening in chapters 1 through 11, and even into chapter 12, we had some of that. And now we get to this kind of practical part in the book. It's this real strange transition in a sense. So the focus really for the start of the book has been on who Christ is and what he's done. And now we're going to see this almost abrupt change in chapter 13 as we begin that this morning. In fact, the last time we were in the book of Hebrews, we were finishing off chapter 12, which in verse 29 says this, for our God as a consuming fire. There's some theology in that, obviously, right? Some orthodoxy right there. Our God is a consuming fire. And the next verse, chapter 13, verse 1, which we'll be looking at today, begins with this. Let brotherly love continue. So you can see there's a bit of a transition all of a sudden. Our God's a consuming fire. Therefore, let brotherly love continue. It's a bit of a strange transition. It's almost abrupt. But you can see now the author of Hebrews is getting into what, honestly, a lot of what the New Testament writer writers and letters would have gone. They oftentimes in the New Testament would start with kind of theology, all of the orthodoxy, kind of what does it look like? What do, who is God and, and, and what has he done for us? And then the second part of the letter generally is what we would call orthopraxy. How do you live? In view of who God is, how do I live my life? And that's what we are now hitting. It's not only, oftentimes it's kind of half the book would be theology, the other half would be kind of this practical living In the book of Hebrews, we get about 11 or 12 chapters of theology, and then the final chapter is the one, okay, well, now this is how you live. In light of what chapters 1 to 12 spoke, this is how you live. And so we begin with this kind of right view of God, which then should lead to a right living for God. And the reason that the authors of the New Testament do this, and especially the book of Hebrews, is that our living for God, you know what, before I started teaching verse by verse, I actually didn't enjoy, I would never pick kind of the first part of a New Testament letter to teach. It was all kind of like, well, we've heard all about how Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I've heard that before. I don't want to tell them that. I want to tell them how to live their life. That's kind of what the second half of all the letters tend to do. But the reality is, is that our living for God, our doing for God must always be kept in relation and focused to what he has done for us. It's only a response. The way that we live our life for God is simply a response to what God has done for us. And we have to keep that at the core of our faith. The, the core and, and really the focus of Christianity, we need to understand this, is it's not what we do for God. 
which is kind of Hebrews 13 stuff. It's kind of doing these things for God. That is not the core of Christianity. The core of the Christian life is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why, that's why the, he, the, the New Testament writers would do that. Half the letter would really be about that. That's why in the book of Hebrews, you've, if you've noticed, basically chapters 1 to 12 were all about Jesus. How Jesus is greater and better. And finally, now we're just getting to the point where it's like, now this is how you live in light of that. See, what we do for Jesus is important, but it's, it's totally secondary to what Jesus has done for us. We need to understand that. We need to know that. And so basically, chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews comes because chapters 1 to 12 have already been written. That's essentially what's going on here. So how do we live? And so this morning, we're going to look basically at four responses this morning of a Christian life that is lived in light of chapters 1 through 12. So if you have a Bible, you want to grab it at this time. If you don't have a Bible, like I don't have a Bible at the moment, so I just got one off the seat. Uh, if you reach into somewhere in the seats around you, there should be a Bible. You need a Bible to follow along. And uh, if you want to go to the book of Hebrews, the easiest way is to go to the back of your Bible. You'll hit Revelation, and then you'll hit like first, you'll hit Jude, and then first, second, third John, and first, second Peter. And then you'll get to James, and then Hebrews. And so uh, turn there to page 1009. And I know you always laugh, but it's because we do have the same Bibles. Uh, I share the same Bible that we have in our chairs. So Hebrews chapter 13, let's read this and then we'll take a moment to pray this morning. Even if you don't have an uh, a analog Bible, you can use your phone perhaps as a digital Bible uh, to read and follow along with. It's going to help you a lot if you follow along with us. So chapter 13 begins in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. God, this morning, again, we want to keep these instructions in light of what you've done for us, in light of who you are. How then are we to live? I thank you, God, that, that the scriptures are full of truths about you, but also truths about, about us and about how we can live our life in this world. And I pray this morning that you would teach us and lead us through your word, that you would by your Holy Spirit, give me the, uh, the words to communicate, the things to say. Lord, that you would be honored and that you'd be lifted up this morning. Help us, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to see, basically in response to all that Christ has done for us, is that we are to be loving. We are to be loving. And first we're going to see towards saints. Okay, so that's the first instruction that we're given. You are to be loving toward saints. Chapter 13, verse 1 begins, let brotherly love continue. You know, if you've read any of the Bible, the scripture is so absolutely clear about the love of a believer. Really, you know this. I mean, Jesus himself told us in John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I think we have the scripture on this, Bill. It should be there, I think. 
by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, a, a few weeks back, we talked about how forgiven people should be forgiving people. In the same way, loved people should be... Oh, come on. Are you asleep? Come on. Hit the person beside you. Come on, wake up. Shake them and say, you should be loving. Oh, you guys are... I'm going to start throwing water on you all just to wake you up, I think. Forgiven people should be forgiving people in the same way the scripture is clear. Loved people. We are loved by God. That's what we were just told. Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Loved people should be loving people. I mean, there's really no excuse for being a Christian and not to be loving. There really isn't. I don't know how else to put it. If you know Jesus, you should be a person of love. There's no way around it. And if you're not a loving person, then I don't really know how else to put it, but do you know Jesus? Because loved people should be loving people. And the author makes it so clear, so simple, so straightforward for us when it comes to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does he say? He says he calls it brotherly love, a specific type of love. And it's not that we're to love like they're our brother. It's not like I'm to love you like you're my sister. The reality is, is that we are family. That's the reality here. Love, let let brotherly love. He doesn't say let your love be like brotherly. Let brotherly love amongst yourselves. Let it continue. Right? We are family, and you know this. If you're a part of a healthy family, you would do anything for your brother or for your sister, would you not? You love your family. Folks, we are family. We are family. And, and, and you, you read this in the Bible, the, the early church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter, by, the, by the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, they have eradicated poverty in their midst. That's what it says. They loved each other so deeply, it says that they would actually sell their possessions Sometimes they would sell fields and homes to bring to those that were in need. And it says in chapter 4 of the book of Acts that there was no needy persons among them. That's brotherly love. That's love that says, you're my brother, you're my sister. I'm not going to let you go without. I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. And, and I have to say, you know what? I think we're, he says to let it continue. In other words, it started, don't stop it. And in many ways, I, I think it's the same instruction to us at DPC. It's not let it get started because I believe we do this. So let it continue. Just this last Christmas, we've got different life groups in our church and one of the life groups wanted to bless a, uh, a single, uh, single parent family. And so they put together a bit of a hamper and some gifts and things and some food, different things to help. And when they took the, the hamper over to this single parent, they discovered that the single parent had been cooking on a, a little barbecue that was their stove. Their stove didn't work in their place. And so they're like, well, this, we can't do this. Why? Because, because they're a brother. They're a sister of ours. We can't, we can't let this happen. And so what did that life group do? They said, we're going to make something. We're going to change this. We can't let this continue. So, and of course, it began to snow that day. That was like right before Christmas. And it was just a nightmare. And they, had to, they went and got a stove and then delivered it. This person had been cooking on a little barbecue for not just a month or two, but for years. Is that crazy? Folks, we are church. We are the family. But I love that our church family stepped up and said, we can't let this happen. We've got a brother. We've got a sister that needs our help. We're going to help them, right? The no needy person. And that's what this is talking about. Let brotherly love continue. You love each other well. And I just have to say, good job. Continue to do that. Continue to do that. So because Christ loved you, continue to love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And then secondly, he says to love strangers. 
Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, in, in Bible times, they didn't have, like, if you drive into kind of any city today that's of any size, really, there's going to be a hotel or a motel in it, right? Even the smallest cities now have basically a hotel or a motel. In biblical times, they didn't have a hotel on every corner, right? There would be, sometimes there would be an inn. If there was an inn in a city, they were often very, very expensive. And not only that, but they were also very, um, they were very immoral. It was a place where not good stuff happened, Okay, so generally an inn was a kind of an unsafe place to be. And so if you think about it, 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 for a Christian, it wasn't really an option oftentimes for them to stay at an inn because of the cost, and it was probably a place that they shouldn't stay because it was not safe for them to do. And so we're told here, be hospitable to strangers. Now, this isn't just speaking about any stranger on the street. In, in the context, it's actually speaking towards Christian strangers. Not to say that we should not be hospitable towards people that are strangers, but but specifically, this is mentioning someone that is a Christian stranger. And you might go, well, are there any Christian strangers around us? Well, yes, of course there are. Of course there are. But the interesting thing is that he gives us, there's a little bonus when you do this. Did you notice this as the verse continued? What did he say? He says, don't, don't, he says, don't, uh, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Isn't that kind of cool? There's a bit of a bonus, that, that, a bit of a motivation here. You never know, you might be actually serving a stranger that's an angel, right? Pretty cool. I mean, you can read about this in the Old Testament. There was, uh, when we went through the book of Genesis together as a church, uh, Abraham, right, entertained some strangers that turned out to be angels, and one of them was Jesus, right? You think of Lot, same kind of story. Uh, when we did the book of Judges, Manoah, right, the father, I believe he was the father of Samson, right, entertained a stranger. Well, it's an angel, right? Jesus shows up. Like, you never know who you're going to be entertaining. And so I'd encourage you even right now, maybe just kind of check around you. You never know who's sitting, but maybe there's an age. Look for a little trail of feathers, perhaps. Maybe there's a coat hanger sticking out from the shirt to hold. I don't know. Are there any angels in our midst this morning? We got a few hands that are up. Okay. Brian, I know you're not an angel. Um, I'm sorry to say, but I really know you're not. Uh, Any other angels maybe in the house? Yeah, Kevin Way? Well, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Again, another one. I think I'd lump you with Brian. <laughs> I know you're not an angel. But, uh, but he does, isn't this cool? This, God sometimes, isn't this amazing? He sometimes plants angelic beings in our midst. That's kind of crazy if you think about it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like he plants a mystery shopper. You know, it's like, I want to see how you're going to treat them, right? I want to see how you're going to, you know, so it's pretty wild. But today, obviously, this looks a little different for us because you know, like I mentioned already about hotels and motels, but strangers. I mean, look around you. Are any of these people here strangers? Yes. Who said that? Oh, yeah, because you're new. That's right. It's your first Sunday here. <laughs> so, of course, everyone's a stranger. You don't know anyone here. But, but the reality is, is if we look around, even if you've attended this church for years, I guarantee there are people that you're sitting beside that are strangers. They're strangers. They may be brothers and sisters in the Lord, but you don't really know them. And so a couple of things. I want to ask you this. How good are you at opening up your home, your life, to the strangers that are around you? You know, one of the purposes that we had in our community gatherings, when we first created our community gatherings, was to help the strangers of our church get to know each other. Because the reality is, is you can come on a Sunday morning like this, and you can leave, and you can maybe have met one person, two people. And even then, probably you didn't meet anybody. Why? Because we have these things called clicks. We have our safe little group that we like to connect with all the time. And so we thought, let's, let's bust people out of their little safe groups 
And so when we first started our community gatherings, this was one of the key purposes. We actually created our groups geographically. So you would know this if you've been a part of our church for a while. We actually divided up our whole church and we kind of made a map. We had a big map in our office and we, we set it all up. And we, okay, let's put these people together. And we kind of grouped everyone together. One of the purposes being to help our strangers get to know each other. Do you know the first gathering that we had at our house? It was really interesting because we are introducing ourselves around uh, the circle. Oh, I am so-and-so. Even though everyone in our group had been to our church, I would say, just thinking quickly, I think most people had attended our church for a minimum of probably three or four years. Probably three years. That would be the newest person to our group. Had been three So, been here a long time. As we're going around the circle, one person says, oh, I live on such and such a street. And someone else pipes up, oh, you do? Well, what's your address? And they say their address. And the, the, the person realizes, we live right across the street from you. Wow. And it just kind of was like, wow. Like, there are strangers all around us, right here, right now. Right now, there's people that you actually are strangers with. Even though we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, we don't know each other all that well. And so he instructs us, be loving towards saints. Be loving towards strangers. And then he also says also towards sufferers. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in, in the body. Now this is specifically speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering for Christ. So it's not to discredit prison ministry because it, that's definitely what some people would use this verse to refer to, that we need to visit those that are in prison. It is a good thing. North American prison ministry, there's actually a lot of people that get saved through it, so I'm not discrediting that. Um, oftentimes when people are in prison, they're kind of at the lowest of the low. They're very ready and, and, uh, to receive Christ. So it's, it's a very fruitful ministry. It's really good ministry. But this specifically is calling us to remember those that are suffering because of Jesus. You see, oftentimes, you know, now our prisons, if you were to go to prison, you're going you're gonna to receive three meals a day. You're going to receive some clothing to keep you warm in prison, to clothe you, and you'll have a bed to sleep on. Well, it wasn't always like that in Bible times. Did you know that oftentimes the prisons in, in, in biblical times was basically you were put in a prison and, well, you're, that's it. That's all you got. You wouldn't sometimes have food. Oftentimes you wouldn't get food. Oftentimes you wouldn't have any clothing provided. And so he's saying you need to help provide. In fact, if you remember Paul in one of his letters to Timothy that he's writing from prison, what does he say to Timothy? He says, winter's coming. Can you bring my coat? Right? Why? Because they didn't have the same things that we have here with our prisons. And so if the church didn't help the, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that were suffering for Jesus, they may be cold. They may be hungry. So much different than we have today. Uh, we actually had, when I was a kid, we would sometimes have boarders, like room and board people that would live at our house. And I remember one time we had a... Um, we had a guy that was living with us that was a prison guard at Wilkinson Road Prison. And so I, it was crazy because I remember him telling us how it wasn't just once, it had actually happened more than one time that somebody had actually served their prison sentence, then, then left the prison and committed a crime so that they could get back into prison. Because it was better for them in prison than it was outside of prison. They had three meals a day. They had clothing provided, like, right? So, so it's a different system that we now have. And so for this season, though, there's, he's saying, listen, you need to care for those. And in North America, you know, we may not be imprisoned or necessarily suffer for preaching Jesus, at least not right now we don't. I think the days may be coming. But there are many brothers and sisters in Christ that are experiencing suffering right in our midst. Right here around us, there are many. And the author reminds us that we are of the same body, 
That's what he says. Hey, you're part of the same body. What, what, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. He puts it this way. Speaking of the body, he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. I just have to say this. I love the love of DPC, if I can put it that way. I love the love of DPC that it, with the suffering of many, you care well for one another. You care well for each other, whether it be through things like meal trains, whether it be through things like um, giving rides to people to, for people to hospitals or for different things, helping out in so many practical ways, driving, visiting, praying, serving, watching kids even. I was just talking um, during the service. Um, Cliff was dropping off his girls at the back door and I was shutting these doors, <laughs> which I forgot to shut before the service. And so I was kind of outside and I was coming back around. And I started chatting with Cliff and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Because of Danae just having her emergency gallbladder removal. And um, as I'm chatting with Cliff, I just said like, hey, you know, how's it going? Is there anything we can do practically as a church? And Cliff says to me, he goes, he goes well, you know, like he says, well, there, there wasn't a meal train set up. And I was like, oh man, we totally dropped the boat on that, right? Or the ball on that one. We missed the boat. Drop the ball, miss the boat. Um, and we, we should have provided a meal train. He said, oh, no, 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 it's all good because people just stepped up. Friends just started making meals. In fact, we have too many. <laughs> He's like, our freezer's getting packed full of meals. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful thing. That's our church. Like, once again, I can brag on you as the body that when someone suffers, you suffer with them. You step up, you serve, you come together. It's not just, it's not just lip service, which sometimes we do. Oh, wow, that's horrible. I'll be praying for you. It's good. Prayer is great, but is there a practical thing we have to do? It's not just lip service, but actual service that I believe our church is, is good at. And we can always get better at that too, serving one another. You know, as, as the great theologians of the 1990s, DC Talks, some of you remember those theologians, <laughs> communicated to us that love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's an action word. That's just saying. Love is not just simply with lips, with words. It's a verb. It's an action word. And, and I think we do that fairly well. We act on our love. We don't just simply say, be at peace. You're okay. God bless you. No, we say, well, what can I do? And I want to encourage you to continue to do that with those that are suffering in our midst. Continue to do that. And I want to also say this. Um, if you have a need, would you let us know? Would you let us know? We are the body. And there's times, some of the things that I hear, like when I heard that somebody, a single parent had been cooking on a little barbecue for a long time, I thought, why did we not know this? We need to know these things. Let's be the body together. If you have a need, let us know and we'll see. We'll see if we can help in some way. So, so let's be the body together. Let's continue to do that, to love one another. So the first result, really, of kind of right theology or orthodoxy is to be loving. And the second result we're going to see in the passage this morning is to be pure. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Now, in the first century, um, marriage was not really always held in a very high honor. Um, even in the, not just in the culture, but even among Christians. It was actually not always held in a very high honor. And, and so there was a couple attacks that marriage really faced in the first century. One of the key attacks was that of, um, of asceticism or self-denial, denial of the flesh. Okay, and then the other major attack that, that it tended to suffer was from kind of the opposite, which was freedom. Okay, so there's these two kind of variants that attacked marriage and the honor of marriage. Some actually taught that, 
that some actually taught that virginity was necessary for Christian perfection. There was actually that teaching that was promoted. It was kind of seen as denying the flesh, right? There's the spirit and the flesh, and we should have nothing to do with the flesh, they would say. And so marriage is something that's a desire that's internal, and that we, so we want to deny that. And so, in fact, if you can deny being married, you're holier, you're better. And they would actually teach this, that it actually was necessary for Christian perfection. In fact, in the second century, some of the monastic movements started to even adopt some of this thinking. You can see it in, in some of their asceticism and self-denial that they would put into place. And it basically carried this thought that, that basically if you were to marry, you were inferior spiritually. Spiritually thinking you were less than because you married, because you indulged your flesh, is what they would kind of say. So how does the author confront that? He just right off the top says, listen, the truth of the scripture is that marriage is actually to be honored. It's not a bad thing, is what he says. It's not a bad thing. The other attack was that of freedom. The culture was very much, kind of like our culture, you're free, you do whatever you want, right? It was kind of the opposite. Basically, if one was to deny the flesh, the other was basically to fill the flesh. And the church, actually, some in the church would take it to the extent of saying, well, we're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. So we can do whatever we want. And so it's like whether it's, it's sex before marriage, which would be sexual immorality, or whether it be adultery, which would be sex within marriage that's not with your spouse. Those are the kind of the two, two things there that are being spoken of. You go for it. He says, you're free. And the author, of course, confronts that, and he says that what's going to happen, that kind of lifestyle, he says God's judgment will be put upon that kind of lifestyle. And you know, things aren't really so different today, are they? I think in many ways in our culture, marriage is kind of seen as archaic, isn't it? It's kind of seen as dishonored in a lot of ways. Uh, it's often even viewed as a bit of like an interference or an impedance towards self-actualization, right? To being all that you are meant to be, Right? We have, it's the I culture. It's all about me, my iPhone, my I, right? It's all about me. And, and marriage gets in the way of me. That's what our culture tends to kind of look at it a little bit like. It gets in the way of you being all you can be, of your career, of, of your success, of your, of your freedom. Terms such as ball and chain, right? You've ever maybe heard that said about marriage, right? The ball and chain or, you know, kind of thing, right? This is the idea. I actually saw an article last week online that the Chinese and the Japanese governments, both governments, have now created a dating app for, their, for their, um, their people. Did you, I don't know if some of you read this. It was crazy. Because the marriage, marriage rate is in such a huge decline in those two Asian countries that the governments are, are, believe this, the Chinese government is now worried about the birth rate. <laughs> They've created a marriage. They're trying to get their people married because they're like, they realize that the, that the marriage rate is so in decline. They're like, we're not going to have people if people aren't getting married. We're not going to have more kids to continue on our our country, because marriage is just not what it once was. It, and worldwide, really, it's not honored like it once was. But we need to understand that marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea, and therefore it's blessed by God, and he honors it, is what he says here in Hebrews. He honors it, and so should we. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, tells us what? It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The very start of creation. God creates man and woman. He says, this is the purpose, right? He says, God's design, God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman. Let me be clear about that. That is God's design for marriage, between one man and one woman, and not to be separated, not to be broken. But here's the truth that Hebrews is getting at here. Not only did God design marriage, he also designed sex, God created sex. Do you know that? 
I'm not going to ask who said that, amen. I'm just going <laughs> to let that one go. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Though I may blush a little bit talking about sex, God doesn't. God doesn't, doesn't make him blush at all. It was his idea. Sex was God's idea. You've got to imagine this. You've got to think about this. Sex, God created sex. He did. He created sex. In fact, the Bible has lots of sex talk in it. If you weren't aware, in fact, there's a whole book in the Bible that's on sex. The Song of Solomon. It's a book on sex. In fact, verse 4, he goes on to say this. First of all, God honors marriage, and then he says this. So you honor marriage, and then he says this. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. He's not talking about having a clean mattress or clean sheets or good sleeping habits, okay? Just to be clear. Some of you maybe are a little bit younger in here this morning. You may need to want to plug your ears a little bit for this part. But, but this is a euphemism. It's a, it's a diplomatic way of talking about sex in marriage. That's what he's talking about. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. He's talking about sex in the married life. And I need to be clear here this morning as well that not only does God say sex in marriage is undefiled, he's not just saying it's okay. God actually says that sex in marriage is good. It's not just okay, but good. It's good. Sex is good. Sex is very good. Can I say that in church? I can. All these guys shouting out the amens and everything here. We got Sex is good. You know, here's the reality. Sex is good. Sex is very good within the confines of marriage. That's how God created and designed it. A number of years ago, I think I might have shared this story before. I may have. Forgive me if I have. But um, when I was a youth pastor in Comox, we did a series on love, sex, and dating with our youth. And we were talking about how, how sex is, is a good thing. Sex, sex is, is um, it's, and we equated it to like a fire. A fire can be a good thing. It can produce warmth for you. It can produce even safety, right? Guarding you from, uh, from harms around you, if you're in the woods, right? Animals, you know, those kinds of things. But in a home, a fire, a fire is great if it's within the confines that, it is, that, that is safe in a home, right? And so I said, you know, I said to our youth, we never would take a fire and light it in the middle of my living room on the floor, would I? Why? What would happen? My house would burn down. And if you compare that to sex, it's so much the same that we don't keep it. Yet, yet how many of us, there's people in this room that have fires in their house on a regular basis. How? A fireplace. You have a fireplace. It's the confines that are safe for that fire to operate in within a home. And in the same way, in, in with, when it comes to sex, there are confines that God has placed for it to be done in a safe way, that it produces good things, good results, that we can enjoy it inside the confines of marriage, right? And so we were talking all about this, and it's the same truth today. When it's within those confines of marriage, it won't, yet we see how many people are trying to, to light a fire, sex, just outside of the confines of marriage. You can see it's burning their house down, isn't it? You can see it in our culture and our society. Anyway, I was, I was saying this with our youth, and I was wrapping up the evening one time, and we had a room, a, a bigger than this room, actually, where our youth met, and I was speaking to the youth, and I was wrapping up the night, and I was saying to them, I was saying, and because we talked all about this, I said, you guys, sex is good. I said, sex is really good. And then I finished off by saying, within the confines of marriage. Well, at that very moment that I was saying sex is good, sex is very good, um, there was a parent that walked into the, 
into the room through the back doors. I didn't know about this. I had no idea that this happened. I only found out about it a week or two later when this youth of mine, we were, we were chatting about something. He's like, yeah, my dad doesn't really like you. <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, he's just kind of, a, he thinks you're kind of strange, some of the things you'll say or whatever. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They didn't go to our church. I didn't, like, I'd never even met his dad. I'm like, I don't even know him. Like, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, the other week when you were talking about the sex, and he came in and he, he walked in and all he heard you say was sex is good. Sex is really good. <laughs> and he just turned around and left. And so this youth of mine, his name is Derek, I said, Derek, did you not tell him what I said right after that? That it's in the confines of marriage? No. (laughs) Yeah. So needless to say, that parent didn't really like me very much, I guess. And uh, anyway, sex is good. Sex is really good. Within the confines of marriage. Let me be very clear about that, okay? Uh, Because here's the reality is that God has a plan and a purpose for sex in marriage. I mean, some of them are pretty obvious. Number one, one of the original commands in Genesis was to be what? To be fruitful and multiply. And I hope I don't have to explain this to you, but sex helps you be fruitful and multiply. Creates children. If you don't know how that all works, Dave Frank is not here today, but he will be doing a seminar for you. <laughs> Dave, I'm not sure if you're watching online, but um, we'll set that date up shortly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously sex, sex, that was one of the purposes, that we would be fruitful and multiply. That's one of the reasons God created it. That wasn't the only purpose that God created sex. May I dare to say that God also created sex for pleasure between a husband and wife, Right? But I also want to say this. Those are not the the main purposes for sex. If we think that that is the only, if if we think that's all that sex is about is, is, is multiplication and pleasure, we're missing God's original and 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 main purpose for sex. Ultimately, ultimately, sex is to bond together a one flesh relationship between a husband and wife. That is the purpose that God created sex for. In fact, Genesis 2 told us that, right? She'll leave his father, mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus even reaffirmed this in Matthew 19, 6, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Paul talks about it in Corinthians that when we join ourselves together in a sexual act, that you actually join together. It's like a one flesh. That's what's the purpose of sex is, is a one flesh relationship. And the marriage bed being undefiled really gives sex meaning. It speaks about that bond that is to be created within sex. Some of you maybe have attended our set-free retreats. In our set-free retreat, we talk about um, the tie and the bond that is made between a couple through sex. What happens? And, and so I'm going to use a few words here that maybe some of you need to close your ears for, but um, uh, that, that, that science has actually told us that during... So sorry, if some of you are getting a little bit... Plug your kids' ears at this moment. But um, during the act of sex, during an orgasm, what happens is that our minds become... This is what science teaches us. Our minds become open and pliable, shapeable and moldable. The reality is, is that most of us, most of us are very fixed on what we believe, on what we, and especially if you've been, if you've been married, when you were first married, you probably had very differing views from your spouse in some different ways. And, and, and the reality is we're so fixed that this is my thoughts, this is what I believe, this is who I am. That changes in sex. That you actually, and the purpose being so that the two can become one flesh. 
it, it, science actually tells us this. Your brain actually becomes pliable and moldable. Those parts in our brain that are usually very established become moldable so that you can create this bond with your spouse, with your husband or with your wife. And, and it's really actually, it's, it's a beautiful thing. In fact, I think, about, I think about Andrew and I and how alike we can be now sometimes. We weren't totally alike when we were first married, of course. Man, we think the same in so many ways. And I mean, you know this, if you're married at all, you know that your wife can probably, not so much husbands, but wives can especially read their husbands' minds. Right? You don't know how many bets I've lost because of this fact. She knows me way too well. Just last week, I do these stupid things. Don't gamble, by the way. Don't bet. Don't. But, you know, we have these games where I'll be like, we have this little Alexa thing in our kitchen that plays music, whatever you can say, Alexa, play whatever. And I get on these weird kicks of I want to play old music that, like, I remember back in high school and stuff. And I was, like, playing this one song, and I'm like, Alexa, play. And I start playing this song, and Micah and, and Andrea are in the kitchen, and I, and I turn, and I have, a, oh, the next song I'm going to play is in my head. And I turn, and I go, $100 to whoever can guess the next song I'm going to play. Andrea, for a second, stops. Micah's like, I, I don't even know what Micah guessed. And Andrea's like, peaches. <laughs> Do you know that song, Millions of Peaches? The Presidents of the United States of America? Old, like, 90s song, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> she just read my mind. She full, I was a song I was going to play. I lost 100 bucks. <laughs> and it's not the first time that it's happened either. Early, I should learn from this. I do it all the time, though. I'm always like, all the time, hey, $100 if you can guess this. You know, I'm always trying to see. If, and she wins sometimes. Even in, early in our marriage, when we had, do you remember those things called compact discs? <laughs> right? And I, we had this big binder full of CDs. And I, I, one time I was like, it was like thick, full of different CDs. I'm like, I'll give you, it was only $50 at that time. Inflation has changed things. And so I was like, 50 bucks if you can guess what song I'm going to play. And she nailed it. Summer of Love, Delirious. But it's, it's a beautiful thing when you can start to become one flesh. It really is. In fact, it's sometimes I think we get a little bit selfish with our one flesh, if I can be honest. We've kind of been like, I really like spending time with you, and I like spending time with you. That's a good thing, because we're one flesh. And... and and that's, that's one of the, that is the key thing, I would say. Not one of, but is the key thing that God created sex for in marriage. However, I will say this. Just as much as the Bible celebrates sexual expression within marriage, it also condemns sexual expression outside of marriage. Like what verse 4 goes on to say. So it says, he says, Keep the marriage bed undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Think about it. What battles or destroys the bond of flesh through sex and marriage. What is it that battles it and probably destroys it like nothing else? Sexual immorality and adultery, right? That's, and that's what he's getting at here. And, and you see how it's so celebrated today in our movies and in, in TV and in, in our culture, terms like casual sex or friends with benefits. That's just messed up. And it just, all it does is it strips sex of its meaning. It makes it so hollow, so empty. And oftentimes the world looks at Christians' view on sex and they're like, you guys are missing out missing out missing out the world has one part of sex figured out and that's the pleasure part that's it that's all they've got that's all that they've got sex is to go so far beyond that to bond two flesh into one and and so sexual immorality adultery it may have that pleasure part but we know we see it that all it does is it ends in pain does it not you can see it because that the two becoming one flesh still happens if you're not married and then you have these people that have just joined themselves and ripped themselves apart time and time again with all these different people. 
and creates so many wounds and so much pain. You can see it in our culture how broken it is. Before we move on uh, to verse 5, I just, I just want to say this. I want to say, first of all, this. If you are single, if you're here this morning and you are single, uh, I want to be very clear. Yes, marriage is honored. But so is singlehood. <laughs> yes, Amy. Yes, yes, it is honored by God. And so you are not less than. You are not. <laughs> of course, Amy knows that. You're not less than if you're single. You're not less than. God still has a plan and a purpose for your life. He absolutely does. For every single person, every stage of life, whether, whether God's ordained your life to be single or whether it's temporary, I don't know, but God has a plan. And I'd also say this. Maybe you're here and you're widowed. Or maybe you're divorced. Or maybe you lived a promiscuous life. I want to say that in all of this, God still has a purpose and a plan for your life. That if you need forgiveness, God offers forgiveness. If you need healing, God offers healing. If you need restoration, God offers restoration. The book of Joel tells us that he will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. God wants to restore and repay to you maybe some of those things that that you gave up. That's the God that we serve. So, let's move on. In light of what Christ has done, be loving, be pure, and then thirdly, these last two are going to go through quite quickly, be content. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, as messed up as our culture may be with sexuality, I, I don't know that we're all that far behind being messed up when it comes to things like materialism if I'm honest. I think we, we need just as much help when it comes to the love of money. You know, I read a book a number of years ago about, um, there were some, some uh, Western Christians, not like cowboy Christians, but Christians from the West, that were in a, um, <laughs> I just thought at the moment, I'm like, oh, that could sound like a yeehaw. Um, so there's some Christians from the West that were in a communist country doing some ministry. And as they're ministering to these, um, these communists, like they're basically underground at the time, hiding out. And they're ministering to this, this pastor in this congregation, and they say to them, like, you, you know, we just want you to know that we're praying for you, we're standing with you. Back in the West, we've got people that are continuing to lift you up under this communist rule and how horrible it is and how oppressive. And, and it was interesting because these, um, it's a true story. The, the pastor and the, the, the church actually said, well, we really are thankful for your prayers. We really appreciate that. But we feel like we should actually be praying for you. And these, these Western yeehaw Christians they're like, oh? And they're like, yeah, you know, um, you may not have to deal with communism, but you deal with something far worse, materialism. Bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? I just want to say, you know, it's really important that we understand this here with this passage. God is not denouncing wealth. Okay, I just want to get to that here. God is not denouncing wealth. Money is amoral. In other words, it's not good or bad. What makes money good or bad is what we do with it and how it relates to our heart, right? You can, be, you can be very rich, you can have everything, and you can love money. You can also be very poor, have nothing, and you can love money. That's the reality of the situation here. God here is actually denouncing the love of money. He's denouncing materialism. And so the key to not loving money, what does he say, verse 5? Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have, which sometimes we go, well, that's sure easy to say when you have everything and I have nothing. You got to think of this, the he- these Hebrew Christians 
at this very moment, the author of the Hebrews is writing to Christians who had lost homes, all kinds of possessions. And the author of the Hebrews is telling them, listen, be content with what you have. They're like, we have nothing. How can we be content? Well, this is how. This is how you can be content with nothing. You have Jesus, and therefore you have everything. In fact, what does verse 5 go on to say? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The whole context of that is in regards to money and things and stuff. That's what he's saying here. You have Jesus, and no one can ever take Jesus away from you. They can take everything else, but they can never take the God who will always be with you. This is why Paul could write in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, talking about the hardships that he faced. He says, he says that they had nothing, yet they possessed everything. How does that make any sense? They had nothing, yet they possessed everything. It's because contentment doesn't come from a number in our bank account. It doesn't come from the car that we drive. Contentment comes from Jesus, so we have to look to him who will never leave us nor forsake us. As a result of it, look what he says in verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, I've got Jesus. I'm not at the mercy, I'm not at the mercy of any man because the Lord is my helper, not my banker, not my employer. The Lord is my helper. I can confidently say that, he says. It was an old story. It's really a parable of a king who was suffering a horrible illness, suffering this horrible illness. And he was advised that in order to be cured of his illness, all he had to do was to find a shirt, uh, to wear the shirt of a content man. That's all he had to do. Put on the shirt of a content man. The problem was is that there weren't any that could be found. There were none that could be found. So he sent ambassadors all over his kingdom, none to be found. He sent his ambassadors outside his own kingdom to the ends of the earth. And finally they found a man who was truly content, but he had no shirt. Now, of course, the moral of the story is that contentment is not from a, it comes from a source other than things, other than possessions. That's kind of what the moral of the story is about. And as Christians, we know that source. What is that source? Jesus. 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 He's the source of our contentment, and Jesus will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So we need not fear. We just need to be content. So be loving, be pure, be content, and finally, be faithful. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. You know, commentators, they all speak about how this, um, this is actually speaking about people that had taught the scriptures but had now died. So remember those leaders of yours that had been faithful to the word of God and now had died. Uh, I think of actually just this last week, we had an email for someone named Roy Webb, who was a pastor here back in the early 90s that passed away back in January. And in a sense, the author of Hebrews is saying, remember people like Roy Webb. Right? Remember his way of life. Remember his example. Remember how he passed on from this life to the next life. Remember his contentment in Christ, that he was ready to meet his Lord, that he was not fearing death. Remember, and, and, and we're told to imitate his faith. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Imitate the faith of these leaders. Yet the reality is, is that it still remains that these people died, right? And many other heroes of the faith have died before, which are unable now to continue to maybe help us with our questions and with our doubts and, 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 and to guide and to teach us as maybe they once had. So you see the contrast now of what the author of Hebrews gives us is that Jesus, on the other hand, is always available, right? He's always, always there, unchanging year after year and forever. Look at what verse 8 says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yes, we should imitate the faith of our spiritual leaders, Absolutely. But you know what? The best pastor, you know this because you know me. 
I'm not saying I'm the best pastor. I'm just saying that, <laughs> I'm just saying that pastors in general, whether they're really good or not as good, they're all fallible. They're all prone to error and mistakes. Are they not? If, you, if you're doubting, yes, I am. <laughs> very much so. Even just last week at our community gathering, I, was very, I gave a great example of how to make a mistake as a pastor. As I, um, we had... Uh, there was, we were hosting here, and um, I was doing the worship, and then Andrew and Lynn Lacey were going to be doing, facilitating the discussion, and it turns out that Brandon's group, they, were, they had a sick kid, and so they're like, we can't host anymore. I said, well, just send them all to the church. I'll take your group. I'll facilitate for them, and so we, we did our worship time together downstairs, and then I took Brandon's group upstairs, and, and I, I began to lead the discussion time, and I thought, I'm, this is what I thought. Before printing off the facilitator guide, I'm going to save paper. I'm going to print it back to back. And so I, um, I printed it back to back, and as I begin the discussion, I began with the end of the discussion. And I'm reading the summary, and I'm going on, and, I'm, and then I get to this, I, I go, and I read the next line, it says communion. I'm like, oh, I just started with the end. I just royally screwed up. I just messed up the whole, the whole morning was a bit of a mistake. And it happens. We all make mistakes. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't make mistakes. He never changes. He never makes mistakes. He never changed. You know, and in a world where things are always changing, isn't it a comfort to know that Jesus never changes? Right? Think about it. Think about the things that you're supposed to eat this year. You were not supposed to eat last year because last year they were going to give you cancer. This year it's actually really good for you. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like it changes all the time. Right? Not so long ago it was actually thought that it was, it was good for you to smoke cigarettes. There was a t- I know we laugh at that, but there was honestly a time where they thought that. It's good for you. It calms you. It relaxes you. Right? And now we realize it's horrible. It's horrible to your health. Jesus never changes. We're changing all the time. Our culture's changing. Jesus never changes. He's always been perfect, always been dependable, always been trustworthy. And the reality is you can't improve on perfection, can you? So there's no need to change. So he says, be faithful. Faithful not only to your spiritual leaders, but to our ultimate spiritual leader, Jesus. As we close, we're going to prepare. The the team's not going to come back quite yet, but I'm going to ask the team to come up in a few minutes. But as we transition to communion, I just want to say this. Maybe you're here this morning and you maybe have failed in regards to some of these things. Maybe it's being loving towards others. Maybe you haven't been the greatest at that. Maybe you've been very selfish and you haven't loved others. Maybe it's been in your purity. Maybe you failed in that area of of purity in your life. Maybe it's in contentment. You know, it's a struggle for us in the Western world with the affluence that we have and you've, you've struggled with materialism and contentment. Maybe it's, maybe it's been faithful in following good leaders. Maybe you've followed some poor leaders over the years. I just want to say this. If you have failed in these areas, there's good news for you. There's good news for you. Come to the cross today. Because at the cross, there's forgiveness. And not only is there forgiveness at the cross, I would say this, there's also hope. There's hope because I want you to know this morning that the life-changing power of Jesus Christ is real. Through his word, through the work of his spirit, he wants to change your life. And so come to the cross if that's you this morning. I also want to say this, maybe, maybe you're here and, and honestly, you don't really care about those things. If you're honest, you don't really care so much about loving others. Your heart doesn't really go that way. You don't really care about purity in your life. You don't really care about being content. You're like, whatever, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't bother me. I want more. I, and you don't really care whether you follow good spiritual leaders or not. I would say this, I would say come to the cross as well. Just be honest and be real. Be honest and be real with God, that God, I need you to change this heart of mine. I know that I should be that way, but, and I'm not. Come to the cross. And, and maybe, maybe you're a third person, perhaps, that I'm speaking to this morning. Maybe you're here and maybe you go through that kind of checklist and it's like loving others, yeah, I got it. I'm good at that one. 
right? Purity, yeah, I've never committed sexual uh, immorality or adultery. Contentment, yeah, I'm pretty content. I'm, I, don't, I don't need stuff. You know, following good spiritual leaders, yeah, I've done pretty good with all that. Then I would say this, if that's you this morning, then you especially should come to the cross. Because I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm sure there's something that God needs to be speaking to your heart about. Humbling yourself probably before him. So as the team comes up at this time, the worship team, as we prepare for communion, if you don't have any emblems, if you're joining us online, now's your perfect opportunity to grab for yourself juice, cracker, some sort of bread. I just want to say this as we close. This representation is of the work that Jesus did for us so that we could experience that forgiveness, that new life, that new start, the life-changing power that is found in Jesus alone. And maybe you're here this morning and you have not committed your life to Christ. You've never given your life over to him. And some of these things maybe that we talked about this morning, maybe you haven't cared because, because honestly you just don't see why you should perhaps. I want to give you the opportunity today to, to give your life to Jesus. And so we're going to just take a moment right now and just with the communion in our hands, I want us just to take a moment to everyone in this room just to, and online to just allow the Lord to speak to us to reveal in our own lives maybe what area it is that we need to work on perhaps. Loving or purity, contentment or faithfulness. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would show us how you want to work out in us your work of the cross and the resurrection because there is real power in Jesus to live a changed life. So God, we want to submit our lives to you. We want to submit our ways to you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anybody in this room or even joining us online today that maybe doesn't know you, is not living for you. I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith and their hope and their trust in you, Jesus. Your word tells us that that you are patient with us because you want everyone to be saved. You want everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I pray that, Father, right now you would be speaking to those hearts that maybe don't know you, Lord, that you would be drawing them to yourself. And so maybe you're here this morning and you realize that you've not lived a perfect life. I want you to know that Jesus has lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life in your place. Maybe here this morning you're joining us online and you realize that you go through that checklist and you've not lived up to it. I want you to know that Jesus has. And so if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Christ, whether it be the first time, maybe it's the thousandth time, would you just slip up your hand? I just would love to pray for you just as we close this morning. Is there anybody here that would say, there's one of you, is there anybody else? There's a couple of you, there's a few of you. Yeah, if maybe this is the first time, maybe you can put your hands down. I want you to know this. If... if if you don't have communion with you right now, grab some communion. <laughs> because this is the representation of Jesus' work for you in your place. So Father, I pray right now for these lives that have humbly admitted that they need to come back to you. Maybe it's their first time, maybe it's their thousandth time. 
but they need to come back for your forgiveness and for your mercy, for your help in their lives. I pray, God, that you would reveal your love to them, Jesus. Lord, I pray that that your love would be shown in these emblems, the cracker, the bread that represents your body, and the juice that represents your blood, the work that you did on that cross so that we could go free. I thank you for the humility of these lives, Lord. I thank you for the forgiveness that you extend. And I thank you, God, for the new start that you're bringing, that right now your word tells us that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I pray, God, for that new life right now in Jesus' name. And Lord, for the rest of us in this room, Lord, we want to just give you thanks and glory for the work that you did for each and every one of us. I want to read from Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. It says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. He goes on, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the juice together. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Why don't we stand together just in thanks as we sing a song in closing. Jesus, we thank you. We give you praise, God. Lord, we thank you for new life, God. We thank you for fresh starts, especially in this Easter season, God, that's all about a new, fresh start, that that you didn't remain in the grave, that we don't just have hope for this life, but God, beyond this life even. That when you speak to us about you won't drink again of that fruit of the vine until you drink it with us anew in your Father's kingdom. You're speaking of the resurrection that we're going to have because you rose, we will rise. And so we worship you. We celebrate that this morning. Your goodness to us, God. We celebrate that we can live a changed life now, though not just in eternity, but here and now. That you want to give us the power and the strength to be people that are followers of Jesus. That because of what you have done, Jesus, because you are better, Therefore, we can live a better way. We thank you for that, Jesus. As we close with a song this morning, if you need prayer, uh, whatever the need might be, would you just feel free to come up? I'd love to meet with you. I'd love to pray with you. So as the team leads us, feel free if you need prayer for anything this morning. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.